and welcome to Hell is for Hyphen. It's for November 2011. I am writer-critic-dodgy-up-conversion hyphen, hyphen, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... I'm um, writer-director-completely-region-locked hyphen, hyphen, uh, uh, Paul Anthony Nelson, and with us this month is our special guest. I'm film-maker John Hewitt. <laughs> Hey, wait, you, you split Filmmaker into two. I saw what you did. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Hyphenates. Thank you for, for being on. Thank you for asking me. It's a, it's a profound uh, privilege. Now, there's a new film out. I don't know if you've seen it, uh, but I thought the first one we could talk about is X. Aha, uh-huh. uh, I've seen that one. You've seen that? Would you care to review it? <laughs> unless, hang on, unless you're like the writer-director of it, that could be a problem. I haven't checked. <laughs> yeah, I'll uh, declare uh, a conflict of interest. Uh, I'm the co-writer with Lynn McClory, the co-producer with Lizette Atkins, and the director. I just got to do that myself. <laughs> I get to do the fun bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, Exit's a fast-moving thriller about a couple of prostitutes and what happens to them one night in King's Cross. Um made, well, for a low budget, but still an obscene amount of money. It's like mm. a million-dollar film, uh, all shot on location. Uh, so it's a very Sydney film, a little salubrious, a little seedy, a little raunchy, you know. Um, there's sex and violence and guns going off. and you know, So it's generically embraceable, which, like, that's my shtick as a filmmaker. I try to make films that have very strong genre elements that sort of speak that universal language and are therefore you know have a broader international appeal a broader international audience and i try and marry that with maybe something a bit more ambitious which is my own uh, i don't know ambitions as a as a as a filmmaker and trying to make movies that are my own or and so- somehow relevant and interesting and uh, fresh or whatever i don't whether i'm successful or not that's up to Film critics such as yourself to decide. But um, well, despite the fact that the director is sitting two feet away from me, <laughs> I did really like it. <laughs> Suck That's up. right. Yeah, Suck yeah. up. This was complete coincidence, <laughs> by the way. The fact that you were on the same month. We try to avoid yeah. that most of the time. But well, I was figuring that you know, like if you, if you thought the film sucked, you might not have had me in. Well, speaking of conflict of interest, my partner is the uh, publicist for Sharmel Films, which just put out This Is Not A Film, which is Jafar Panahi, the Iranian filmmaker, has had a ban put on him by the Iranian government. He can't make any films. He's confined to his house and does not make a film. Uh, the thing that he has made is not a film. It's, it's there in the title. It's, it's called An Effort. Uh, and a filmmaker friend comes around and films him going about his day uh he films part of it on an iphone is it is it specifically called this is not a film because he's banned from making films it it works almost like a rebuke to the yeah well it works on on so many different levels on one it's it's the political statement that you've told me i can't make films this isn't a film on the other hand at one point he tries to describe a film that he was going to make the screenplay and he stops halfway through because he's so frustrated and he says if you could tell a film why would you make a film and so on that level it works it's it's also, I think, a great counter to critics who say, well, nothing happens. And there haven't really been any because, you know, everyone's generally got it. Mm. It's a really, really clever film. And, and it, there's literally no film involved as well. Like, it's shot on an iPhone and other digital formats. Exactly. Yeah. It works on another level It's all as that well, sort yeah. of stuff. I mean, I think Jaffa Panani is one of the great, filmmak- great contemporary filmmakers. I haven't seen This Is Not A Film, I, I should say. Uh, not yet. I will. But uh, I thought The Circle mm. was an amazing film. And yeah, obviously, you know, working in the Middle East or uh, Iran, is it or Iraq? Yeah, 
Iran. Mm. Yep. You cannot be not political. Mm-hmm. Just making a movie there is a is a political, political act. act. Yeah. You know. He's an awesome filmmaker. Speaking of politics, Ides of March, which was one I was really, really looking forward to because I love Clooney as a filmmaker, I think. Uh, good night and good luck. Good night and good luck is just a superb, perfect piece of art. Uh, I love the cast and I was really looking forward to it. And it mostly delivered. I think it's it's like, it's so close. The, the, the one sticking point I have is that there is a major... A character turns at one point. It's a 180 degree turn. The whole film pivots on this and it happens off screen. And it really, it's just one of those things. It's the only problem I have with the entire film and I can't get past it. The rest of it is great. Mm. I'm trying to figure out which, what you took. I saw it last night at the Nova. Yeah. Oh, I loved it. Mm. Uh, I thought it was you know, beautifully performed and very well directed. Incredibly restrained. Yeah. Um, it was like Clooney himself, I think. You know, it was sort of cool and uh, good-looking and uh, <laughs> restrained and smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, with a de- definite sort of liberalism going on. But I'm trying to, f- I, I, I'm trying to figure out what you actually mean without having a spoiler without, in. Yeah, this without thing. spoiling, it's we can we can stop and then you can tell me and then we can <laughs> <at least do. laughs> yeah we might do that. Yeah, I'll t- I'll, I'll tell you after the break. Yeah. Uh, look, it's it's honestly. I've talked to people about that problem, about the problem that I had with it, and they didn't have a problem with it, and they actually liked the way it was handled. So it's possible that on a second viewing, it won't bother me at all. Uh, uh, it was just one of those one of those sticking points I had. The way one thing can just overtake a film for you. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of huge sort of flips in the story. You know, like characters are going one way, and then they go the other way, and then they go back the other way. You know, that sort mm. of thing. And yep, and. Uh, but but we see that in everyday politics, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. It's, you see a lot of it in real life, even though everybody tries to exercise it out of scripts, mm. you know, and out of movie narratives. <laughs> but uh, oh yeah, I thought it was a superb film. Mm. He's an awesome filmmaker, George. He's great. Green. Yeah. I mean, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind is terrific as well. Yeah. I can't wait to see this. This mm. just looks really so. good. Now, John, you've seen Bill Cunningham and uh, Tumala, two very different films. Yeah, I've seen those two films. That the doco on the extraordinary sort of street-level fashion photographer for the New York Times, uh, Bill Cunningham, um, who's been, I think, snapping fashion in New York on the streets for about 50 years. It's a great document about how fashion has developed and how he's played a part in that uh, in New York. But it's also an extraordinary portrait of an incredibly interesting and eccentric person um, and just his his sort of... um, priest monk-like life mm. in this lifestyle that's known for its profligacy and its sex and its excess and he's this sort of this uh what's the word like a monk-like figure who lives mm. this sort of minimal life just to document fashion he used to be a haberdasher in the 40s like hat maker he had this sort of watershed experience in the 1940s or very early 50s where uh, some business person got involved with him, um, some fashion rag trade business person, and, and set him up in his own business to make hats. And then it sort of went bad. And he decided from that time on never to be beholden to anybody from that time on, like in, in never to accept anything. So, you know, he, he, he never even takes a drink. Like, like he'll be shooting paparazzi stuff at openings at the Museum of Modern Art and everybody knows him and everybody sort of loves him and 
idolizes him. Even Anna Wintour sort of speaks about Bill Cunningham with sort of like a real awe. And she's never been in awe of anybody but herself. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Know? <laughs> um, so, he's a very interesting character. So, he's had an incredible influence. And he's, I don't know, just one of those individuals where you just go, thank Christ, people like this exist in the world. Yeah. yeah. So, it's a great doco. Oh, cool. Sounds amazing. Yeah. Now, I'm a big Ivan Sen fan. How's Tumala? I'm looking forward to seeing it. Tumala's an incredible film. Yeah. Um, it, it just resonates with a truth. We're, we're privileged to go into a, like a community and see what goes on. It's got a real story. feels like a documentary. It obviously isn't. It's a, it's a, it's a drama. Mm. I don't know. Like For me, it's like the ultimate, ultimate filmmaker's film. It's like it's shot, cut, sound recorded, catered, <laughs> all by Ivan Sen. He did the whole right. thing. I think it was just Ivan and wow. his dog in his car with his camera. I don't know. It's just one of those object lessons in, you know, low budget filmmaking. I think it costs like six hundred grand, and it, but it, you know, like it's a black fella experience. It resonates with truth. There's an undeclared war in Australia going on between black and white Australia, and it's getting worse and worse. Mm. And uh, you know, it's only people like Ivan um, and other indigenous filmmakers who are even willing to go anywhere near that. Well worth seeing. You got to go see that film. Definitely will. Particularly if you're an Australian. Yeah. You can't yeah, miss yeah. that shit. <laughs> now, Paul, you've been awfully quiet this segment. I have, because I've seen nothing. You've seen nothing? <laughs> yeah. But you have seen We Need to Talk About Kevin. Yeah. Almost makes me wish I'd seen nothing. Yeah. It's, it's that severe. Controversial. Because mm, I know the love for this film has been quite um, wide-ranging and, I've got to say, baffling. Um this is the most... I mean, for something claiming to be an art house film, it's one of the most reductive film experiences I've seen in some time. It's... <sighs> now, I understand... I need to qualify this. I haven't read the book. And apparently the book makes things a lot more clear. Um, but I think even hearing of uh, the book's approach to the story, I think Lynn Ramsey's dropped the ball here. Basically, it's beautifully shot. It's really well acted. But it has less emotional complexity than say Friday the 13th Halloween The Omen this is the territory we're in it's it's basically Tilda Swinton is a mother who um, is having trouble connecting with a child and and isn't invested in the whole motherhood thing like is, is just emotionally closed off and trying but not terribly hard to connect with her son who as it turns out, from the age of about two or three onwards, is evil incarnate. And um, is, you know, Machiavelli scheming at the age of three, you know, like pooping his pants in revenge and, you know, and destroying everything she loves and and uh, being really sweet around the dad and horrible around the mother and basically growing up to um, become a fully-fledged um, psychopath. It's basically, it plays out like the Joker's origin story. It sounds pretty fascinating. Yeah, except it's, there's, there's no nuance. There's no emotional, it's just, this kid is evil. Really? I mean, it sounds almost impossible to believe, given Lynn Ramsey's other films, like Ratcatcher and Morven Keller. I haven't seen either of those, and I've heard They're great incredible things about films. them. They really are. She's something else as a filmmaker. And that's what kills me here. And I think is, there's a lot of style 
hemorrhage going on here. Like, there's a mm. lot of... She's just throwing a lot of visual style at the screen. Um, look, some of it is beautifully shot. The, the sound design is quite impressive. I think technically and in terms of performance, you can't fault it. I just think in terms of the writing and the treatment of uh, and how hard Ramsey's decided to push all this is just way off base. And in the end, I it became quite silly to me. Um, actors seem to be kind of... Uh, particularly the, um, Ezra Miller, who plays Kevin. On one hand, he's really great, but on the other hand, he, he's clearly been directed to do so. He's, you know, posing evilly at the top of the stairs with his shirt off, listening in on his parents. And it's well, How old is he when he does that? Like he's, 15 or yeah, yeah. 15 and looks about 23. Mm. Um, and then we get... With the intercut with scenes of um, Tilda Swinton post the big thing that happens. And, you know, everyone in town hates her. And, and there's all these really painful metaphors. Like, she's constantly cleaning red paint off things and constantly... And it's like, I'm washing the blood. Like, constantly having these Lady Macbeth moments. And it's just so heavy-handed. I, I, I thought this film was dull. I thought, yeah, I thought it lacked nuance. And in the end, it, it really annoyed me. Two points. One, I agree with everything you said. And two, happy opposite day, everybody. I, this is one of my favourites of the year. Wow. Absolutely. I am, I'm wh- giving this the Drew McQueenie. Wow. <laughs> it's... Yeah, no, I uh, honestly, the opposite of everything you said. Uh, I, I am blown away by it. I have read the book, but I don't think that's why I love the film. I, I can only approach it as somebody who's read the book, so I can't come in fresh. But I, I honestly think, uh, just talking about how she approached the adaptation, I think that the the main thrust of how the story was told in the book, they find the cinematic equivalent. That's a very, very literary uh, trope they use, and they find a very cinematic way to, to have the exact same effect. I would almost teach this as adaptation 101. <gasps> yeah. Uh, all those things you Portable said, the, meta- the metaphors with the, with the red and the paint, I... I agree that they're uh, that they're there. I just oh, I love them. It's painful. It's <laughs> all of those things that you're talking about. The uh, how how the the kid is depicted. I think it's very very nuanced um, because it's all about the unreliable narrator and it's yeah, all but about. The film doesn't make that clear. Well, it's pushing too hard. I think hard it does. I no, think because it does. we see her in the modern scenes being victimized, and and we come to that conclusion that. Oh, the kid is evil incarnate. She's perfectly fine. No, it's the Whereas ultimate. the book's a lot more telling. Well, about it's that. it's it's actually it's actually quite. It masks it as well. The book masks it quite well, uh, but it's a real nature versus nurture story. In that he is actually a bit of a bad kid, but she pushes him that way as well by reacting to what she perceives as uh, almost an infringement on her lifestyle. It sounds but, like a bit of a bad seed for the. New Millennium yeah, or something like that. That's what it comes off like. Yeah. Oh, I, but in, know, a, in a bad way. That wasn't a criticism. <laughs> that was yeah, like... Yeah. No, that's that's a, incredible yeah. film. Oh, uh, look, I think... Yeah. We're have to actually, I've got to say, you're the only person I've heard say a bad word about Wow. Film. Yeah. I've heard a couple of others. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, this is... Uh, and honestly, of all the films I thought would divide people, uh, I, I did not predict this being one. I thought people might not like it, but... I didn't realise it would it would polarise people the way it has. So uh, well, it's, it's polarised you. Yeah. Last year, yeah. we, ha- we have one me? film every I six have months. These reactions <laughs> two or three times a year to films yeah. that everybody seems to love, and I just come out on the other side going, "Really? What was that?" Yeah. 
All right. Um, I just thought it'd be a nice opportunity, uh, seeing we have an independent feature filmmaker in the uh, studio with us at uh, HI4HHQ. It's quite a mouthful. <laughs> um, to have a little roundtable about the way independent films are financed these days. And well, I guess every Australian film is an independent film to an extent. Um, we don't have studios here. The paradigm is rapidly changing, particularly with, with digital technologies available to us, but also with Hollywood shutting down a lot of their uh, art house arms and you know focusing mainly on acquisition rather than production of... of um, you know, sort of non-tentpole, non-franchise. Seems like they're not interested in anything. The, the Hollywood aren't interested in anything that costs less than a hundred million or more than a hundred thousand. It's paranormal activity or it's tentpole. And quite amazing filmmakers are having to find angels in order to finance their films. Like um, recently, um, a billionaireess named uh, Megan Ellison uh, has opened a. Um, a independent production company which is financing Paul Thomas Anderson's next two films and another filmmaker uh, Wong Kar Wai's next film and wow. suddenly these people can't find financing at studios or, or with the, the usual multinationals um, David Lynch hasn't made a film in ten years um, mm. well five five years Lana and Andy Wachowski are just shooting um, uh, Cloud Atlas based on the David Mitchell novel with Tom Tikwa mm. so the three of them are sharing sort of directing duties it's a awesome script it'll be an awesome film and it's like a 120 million dollar film but they could couldn't get any studio backing so it's just like this hodgepodge of foreign sales foreign agents and everything and yeah and people and tv you know, rights and pfizer millionaire and millionaires and god knows what and you know these are people who have made one of the most successful films of all time mm. yeah like the game changer like the matrix yeah that, you know like yeah, it's a tough world out there. It seems like it's harder and easier at the same time for people to make films, but it's only easier as long as you s you start thinking micro budget. You start thinking, uh, you know, sub one million, and it seems like the million the minute you sort of begin to crack one million, it suddenly becomes you know it's incredibly more difficult, and suddenly uh, filmmakers are in this stage now where they're having to kind of downsize their vision or work out the best way possible to do what they want to do on a sub one million dollar budget. And there's various ways. Now we see um, crowdfunding has entered the uh, the atmosphere mm -hmm. um, with um, sites like Possible and Kickstarter and and then there's sort of, there's pros and cons with those things as well. But um, yeah, I was just wondering, John, like with X, your, your experiences um, getting that up and running. Well, I mean, like for me... Uh, <laughs> Financing, like, X is my fifth feature film. Um, and I've had the gamut of experience from, like, run-and-gun, self-funded, rock-bottom, spending-no-money guerrilla-type stuff to, well, uh, Acolytes, which was, like, a $4 million film with the money in the bank before we turned over with a big circus and a big crew and so on. But I think raising the money is the hardest thing of all for most filmmakers you know um you know un unless it's just some greenlit hollywood thing and then you're off and running yeah and that only happens on a handful of things so we're talking out in the real world trying to p p somehow pull the finance together of anything I, I can only speak about my own experiences and that is like it's always been hard and in fact i've been luckier than i've ever been in the last few years like uh, my first film that i made with richard wollstonecroft bloodlust i mean that was we got 50 grand from a couple of gangsters in the video <laughs> industry in the late 80s 
but the film cost 75 in the end because of numerous production hurdles and so on. <laughs> so we had to max out our credit cards and, you know, I, I, th- I think I'm still not forgiven by credit card companies <laughs> um, to deliver it. Um, and then Red Bull... And they're more ruthless than gangsters, generally. Uh, well, they are gangsters. <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> but then I had, you know, the normal, I guess the normal filmmaker career slash experience, hyphen experience or whatever, <laughs> um, uh, uh, when I was approached by some producers um, to direct, uh, to rewrite and, and direct Acolytes, which th- had to sort of find its way into production still. But that ended up being a, it was a $4 million film and I was paid 75 grand to direct that film. Um, and it was the most ec- incredible experience. But I was 48 years old mm. and I'd already made three films and Acolytes was the first time I'd actually been paid to do it. Finally coming to X, um, uh, Blender and I wrote the first draft of that script in 1999, but it wasn't financed until 2009, um, when I finally sort of connected with an old, I, I finally convinced an old friend, Lizette Atkins, Melbourne producer, um, to uh, to join me in trying to get the film made, and we were in the right place at the right time. Screen, Screen Australia had that low-budget production fund uh, for films under a million dollars, and we were a cool project and very developed project that could be made for a million bucks mm. rather than a two million dollar film retooled to be made for a million dollars which there are a few of them around yeah so we were just lucky like any any film there's always a you just got to be lucky yeah there's a there's confluence th- of events isn't there th- that yeah there's all that sort of stuff mm. but you know the, the the finance for x was um mainly screen australia Film Victoria put up a little bit of money uh, and it, uh, y- y- we did all the post-production in Victoria and obviously um, Lizette is a, a, a well-known Victorian-based producer. There was a yeah, bit of money from domestic, there was a little bit of private investment and the film was made for a million bucks. So that's how we put that together. But you know, the bulk of the finance still came from a government agency mm. and we were the lucky ones to get the dough. And there were another 10 people who didn't. Yeah. So it all comes down to being lucky. You know, it comes sort down of to being a lottery to a certain extent. Well, it's yeah, you know, because I mean, I don't believe me. I've written lots of films that have never th- mm. that'll never be made, and it's not because the scripts aren't good and the projects aren't sound. Yeah, it's just you know, you aren't the lucky person. That's the thing. Start, they let know. me qualify that statement. Yeah. I'm not saying you won the lottery and you no, no, no. But it's yeah, because you you've got one. ten unproduced scripts, and everyone yeah. else and other people have made films that got ten, twenty unproduced scripts, and sure. it's whichever one of those scripts is part of the lottery. Yeah. I guess I'm saying is that it's you speak to anybody, no matter who they are. Like I mentioned, Lana and Andy Wachowski and Tom Tikwa, they still didn't know whether they were going to pull all that crazy ass finance together until I think the the couple of weeks before pre-started, or a couple of days before pre-started. Mm-hmm. And you go, fuck! Even people of that caliber, you know, it's just as hard for them as it is for us schleps. You know, like. <laughs> It's amazing. Sc- scrounge the free money that's available in Australia. That's you what know, you like find, like, you know, we're in, like, Lee and I are both, you know, have emerging filmmakers. And you sort of look, if Paul Thomas fucking Anderson can't get financed, what hope do we have? Mm. <laughs> There's a bit of that sense. <laughs> it's yeah. like, I mean, is the guy's possibly the greatest filmmaker in the world under 40, and it's like, how... Yeah, what's going on? Yeah. yeah. What's, I think my way forward, uh, you know, is to continue making... Well, I, I don't call them. I don't like low budget, because it's still a million bucks, and that yeah. is an obscene yeah. amount of money. I've long had a bee in my bonnet about this about Australian films. I don't think any Australian film at in this climate has any business costing over ten million dollars. 
because we don't have the inf- industry infrastructure to prove that we can make that back. And it's, you know, you, you've even got something like Moulin Rouge, which is a $50 million movie, only making $50 million in the US. And, to, like, and that's a studio kind of deal. Like, as far as Australian films go, I mean, how many Australian films have grossed over $30 million worldwide, which is what a $10 million film will need to make back, at mm. least? It's a simple fact that the world doesn't really want Australian feature films. Mm. You know, like if we never made another one again, the industry, the world wouldn't really care. As long as we keep giving them actors, they'll be happy. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah, you know. Uh, it's mm. certainly easier now than it's ever been to literally make a film. Yes. Like to deliver a product that is acceptable uh, technically in any territory in the world. It's incredibly easy. You can shoot it on that iPhone and cut it on that computer that I'm looking at right now, and you can mix it on that desk, and somebody in India will buy it mm. and give you 10,000 US or 20,000 or 100,000 US. And, or, and the thing that keeps every filmmaker dreaming is the, the, like the blue sky potential of making a movie. Mm. Like you can make a car and you can only sell it for 30 grand. You can make a movie and you can sell it for, it can have no value or it can be worth millions and millions of dollars hmm. we've talked me into it I think we should <laughs> stop recording and make a film because we have everything we need right here <laughs> <laughs> alright John so please tell us whom have you picked for your Hellas for Hyphenates filmmaker of the month I've picked Andrei Tarkovsky the Russian filmmaker the late Russian filmmaker uh, and my all time favourite filmmaker he's more a I don't know, a deity or a god than a <laughs> somebody that I want to emulate as, as a filmmaker. Yeah, so well, I it's interesting because Paul, Paul was real, uh, and we both were uh, quite surprised because your filmmaking style is so, you know, raw and gritty and... And, uh, and, and very genre-based. Yeah, sure. And, and yeah, Tarkovsky's I mean, I, I'd, the antithesis of something. I'd certainly of say the, the, my influences I'd probably cite as... Abel Ferrara, uh, Lars von Trier, Russ Meyer, uh, George Romero, you know, like yep. people like that, Gaspar No. Whereas the filmmaker that I absolutely like deify, like adore, mm. like, like for me, he's like the Mozart or the Shakespeare yeah. of the medium. He's like the person who is just operating on a different level than all the other mere mortals mm. and showing a way forward, you know, that we're still to embrace properly but just showing a way forward and doing it with um, I don't know integrity or whatever the word is just Mm. you know following his vision as best he could and uh, incredibly significant on me in that like he's the person that turned me on to difficult cinema if you Mm. like a a difficult experience yeah like that sort of broadened my sympathies to go you know what I'm watching this movie and I don't really understand it but that ain't a pr- that that ain't a problem. Mm. I'm love I'm loving it, and I know if I watch it again, it's going to give me so much more. And you know, you know what I mean. Mm. Like um, I was like a, a, a I'd come from Wodonga to go to university. I was at La Trobe Uni in Melbourne, and and uh, Wodonga is like an inland town, Aubrey Wodonga, squalid little industrial town. Um, and going to university was my ticket out of that place. And in my first year at uni it was 1977. Uh, I went to the Valhalla in Richmond mm. and I, uh, I saw Tarkovsky's Mirror because I, I don't know why, I just 
heard about this interesting Russian filmmaker. And I can remember watching that film, being completely knocked out by it, but I had, I didn't have a clue what any of it was about. It just seemed mm. so impenetrable to me. Um, but I still loved, I still loved the experience. Mm. I mean, you know, it was like that sort of thing was maybe in the ether. There was just take some acid or get high and go see a movie and like it's a head trip man and who gives a fuck what it's about mm. like you know like 2001 I know uh, El Topo you know uh, 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 in that year I took a lot of acid and watched El Topo from the front row of the Valhalla Richmond I don't know maybe 10 times <laughs> over the year so I was up for that sort of stuff you know just like watching movies and and just feeling them viscerally rather mm. than mentally or whatever yeah, it's it's an incredibly distinct memory watching Mirror and going. I, I have no idea even how to describe what the film, what what it was about. Mm. I didn't really know, but it was still fascinating. I felt I felt like I'd been in the presence of something important, and you know, like uh, subsequently uh, I watched it again and again and again over the years and read about it and and started to make sense of the narrative. And mm. in fact, you know, the narrative is relatively embraceable and you know it's, it's it seems a lot easier to understand just on the surface than it was in that first the first time i saw it like maybe for you guys it was different but for me i just uh, like the idea that there could be a, a narrative that was just the fragment the fragments of somebody's dreams and hallucinations and uh realities I didn't even know that that you could even do that shit. You right. Know? Yeah. <laughs> I just didn't know how to how to uh, evaluate it, how to make <laughs> sense of what was going on. Then I, I I started to try and watch all his films. Like this is in the days before video. Yeah. Mm. You, you, you could only go to the cinema to see a movie or watch it on TV, if it was programmed. Mm. Um, and these films were never. Yeah, there was no SBS. Yeah, can't think of Channel Nine playing a Tarkovsky double at Absolutely. the sexy new time of eleven p.m. Absolutely <laughs> not. But like, and then. Um, uh, you know, I started catching up with his films and, and, and certainly Ivan's Childhood, which is his first feature film mm. and po- probably his most uh, sort of conventional, easy to understand narrative. That, that is my all-time favourite movie. Wow. Yeah. Nice. And it was a huge influence on Acolytes. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, those things shot in the forest. There's actually a couple of direct reference, uh, a direct shot straight out of Ivan's childhood in Acolytes there's a scene where one of the boys sort of uh, holds the girl over uh, like a furrow in the ground and kisses her Mm. that's that's from Ivan's Ivan's childhood Mm -hmm. there's a shot like that and there's also the one where Hannah's like blowing into a spot like looking through a spider web that's straight that's the opening shot of Ivan's childhood and it, you know, like Ivan's childhood is about a, 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 like a 12 year old boy who's a front line scout for the Russian army um, during the Second World War, and seeing all sorts of horrible shit, and you know, you know, doing stuff that grown men couldn't do. Mm. It's and such a great raw first film, and yeah, such a it's, it's such a thing because his his first three shorts, which were the Killers in '56, uh, there will be no leave today in '59, and Steamroll on the Violin in '61. Were they all student shorts? Was he yes, st- yeah, yeah they're, they're all, all a video. Yeah, stuff. every mm. film student, you should be ashamed of yourself that he's making stuff at that standard. Uh, and that I was wondering about the budgets of some of those. Man, they well, must yeah. have had some crazy curriculum but even so, going he knows, on there. They're not just throwing a budget at it. He knows what he's yeah. doing for word go. 
Yeah, you're being unfair there. He is the great filmmaker of all time. So yeah, but he was we a all pale into insignificance to yeah. him. But yeah, yeah he. he, he yeah, I know what you mean. He's he, even his student films seem fully formed, yeah, yeah and exactly. somehow, out like uh, out there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, well, obviously he was a, a filmmaker in the Soviet Union, and you had to be incredibly lucky to be one of those people. Mm. And, and w- once you're in that system, those things were provided for you, like budgets and mm. you know, like all sorts of shit. Like Sergei Bundachuk made like War and Peace with the Russian Army, or yeah. the Russian Army, Air Force, and Navy at his disposal, <laughs> you know? like hundreds of thousands of extras and shit like that. Like I always thought that Tarkovsky was such a visionary and such a genius that like he only made is it seven feature films in yep, his seven career? Seven features. Mm. Like, and he had a long career. He died just he, he was close to sixty, I think, when he died of cancer. As a as an exile from Russia, because he made his films behind the iron, you know when the Cold War was still going on, Russia was still mm. a communist country and all that sort of stuff. Mm. I always th- thought that he only made seven films because he was such a perfectionist, yeah. and he did so much work, and he only really wanted to make the films he really wanted to make, and he and his films were so perfectly realized and so intimidatingly correct. Mm. and precise um they uh, i just thought that that was his that was him but i subsequently found out like reading his diaries which then like became available much later after his death and that like his ideal was to make a movie a year if like yeah. he, he always had projects in development and if in an ideal world if he had his dream he'd be make he'd make a movie every year mm. and he made and 7 in 25 years yeah and I mean that was it, it, it's a bit like what we were saying before about trying to get your movie financed. Yeah. I mean, just imagine if there are another like t- fifteen Tarkovsky films, mm. how much better the world of cinema and the world in general would be. Yeah, because he had them in him. You know, mm, like yeah. oh, it would have been great. But it, it's it's interesting uh, talking about Andrei Rublev because after Ivan's childhood in '62. I was watching that thinking he could have gone in any direction at that point. He could have been a Scorsese. He could have made crime films if he wanted or, or war films. He could have gone into genre. He could have... There, he seemed fully formed in terms of skills but not necessarily in terms of direction. But with Andre Reblev in 66, that's when you start to see this is the sort of filmmaker he wants to become. Uh, and it is kind of... Uh, you said impenetrable before talking about the mirror, but this yeah. was, I think, Rublev is probably the most impenetrable for me. Oh, okay. Uh, it's an extremely um, difficult watch for me. Really? Yeah. 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 I have to say, I, I, I come to us. I have arrived at a summation about Tarkovsky and myself, and I'll come to that towards the end. I really, really loved most of Ivan's childhood, but he displayed some, and I guess I'm trying to put this delicately. It's sometimes he uh, he's not particularly interested in focusing on one journey. He'll sort of go off in directions that interest him. Um, and with Ivan's childhood, as I was incredibly interested in Ivan in the child, and then for huge amounts of time, we're taking we're looking at the young soldier and the older mm-hmm. soldier fighting over the girl, and mm-hmm. and the girl herself doesn't seem to be so much a character as an object of conflict between mm-hmm. these two men and I just wasn't interested in that I wanted to get back to Ivan's story I wanted to get back to this this boy that wanted revenge on the Nazis and was having to, as you say do a man's job and risking his life and 
just powered by rage mm-hmm. and that was so much more interesting so i loved i, I loved the visuals i love the directions it's an incredibly audacious debut love the main story but that lack of focus bothered me and then in andre rublev that was just given full vent you have you have the the title character disappears for half hours sure um there's some stunning sequences in it but there's also you know uh, extras and castles and yeah, but he was into cinema as a visceral experience, as an experience that has nothing to do with the brain, mm. that is like a physical experience. And I mean, I, I well, like that's that re- as well. That's you know? really interesting because I, too, I prize cinema as a visceral experience and I felt Andre Rublev seemed to be taking, almost, taking place almost completely in the head. Mm. It seemed to me to be almost completely intellectual experience and didn't engage me viscerally or emotionally. Okay. Um, and so in the end, I actually kind of became extremely alienated by the film <laughs> and just felt that he wasn't meeting me halfway. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, I don't need to be spoon-fed, but at the same, you know... and, and Sounds like you his, need to be spoon-fed. Some of his other, <laughs> some of his other films I think you're lying to us hit now. it more effectively, I think. Um, but Rublev really enraged me. What about... Cool. The, his, his most popular film, without a doubt, has got to be 72's Solaris. That's got to be his most well-known because it was because uh, it's like a post 2000 it was the russian 2001 yeah well pretty much and i mean really it is it was a personal vision of the future like 2001 or even yeah. alphaville yeah. where you've got this filmmaker who is using the future to explore something very personal to themselves yeah. and remade by your favorite filmmaker by my my favorite filmmaker yeah 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 yes pretty strongly remade too i reckon yeah oh, I'm, i well i yeah i actually saw the remake first and then went back oh, okay and saw the original, and my God, I, I love it. I think it's, uh, I think it's yeah. certainly one of his best films. Yeah, and uh, like uh, you know, they say Tarkovsky's influences have been. I mean, he was, a, believe it or not, he was a huge influence on Ingmar Bergman. Oh yeah. Um, well, Bergman said he was the finest filmmaker ever at one point. Yeah, and I think Tarkovsky would have shared that sentiment mm. about Bergman. Absolutely. And uh, Robert Bresson, you know, mm, he was very yeah. much a purist, you know, but he yeah. did love. And he loved Kurosawa, and I mean the filmmakers who were around at the time. Yeah, yeah, he loved yeah. he loved Japanese cinema. Like, it yeah. tended, yeah, it tended to be a lot of yeah, Bresson, Bunuel, Bergman, Mizuguchi. Yeah, uh, a few Russian filmmakers who aren't. Yeah, like and uh, he's, he's influenced by a lot of Sergei. Russian authors as well. Like he's, mm. um, yeah. I mean, it, for him, uh, cinema cinema was uh, a poetic act as mm. much as yeah. anything else. So like the structure of poetry and you know, like the way things resonate across a work rather than. So, I guess what I'm saying is his films weren't only narrative script-based mm. works. Yeah. They were visual. They were like resonances in in just what you're seeing rather yeah. than what you what you're hearing and what how, how actors are interacting on the screen. Yeah. Um, well, the best example of that is Solaris, which isn't a traditional science fiction. In that, oh, there is the scientific explanation mm. for it. It's all about the emotion and I think that's that's a great example of, of what you're saying is that his films are so emotive and everything happening on the space station is about your emotions and your memories so yeah I really dug Solaris and it's interesting because it's the film that he likes least it's the film that he uh, that he made that he thought was least successful because he thought he was too bound to genre um, <laughs> and it's it's funny because it's it's the film I got into the most. I, I thought it had, I thought it said so many important things about about memory and about identity and about why we love. And there's something dreamlike about Solaris, and there's something, and it is a film you can kind of swim in. I, there I is, really dug it. 
there's a theme I, I found throughout his work, and I, I maybe I'm reading too much into it. I'm getting into a bit too uh, pop psychology on him. But he, this is a guy who grew up during World War Two. He had to flee Moscow as a, as a young boy. He then spent most of his life in Soviet Russia. So he is surrounded always by some form of, of, of oppression. And throughout his films, there is a very strong theme of the environment as the villain. The villain is almost always the place you're in. It's never a person. And Solaris is the first film where I think that theme comes across and it pretty much sticks around for every single film from then on uh and i don't know if that's down to his childhood or if it's just down to what interested him as an artist um, well he also yeah he did live in the soviet state and, yep. and his works were heavily censored by the authorities i mean he still got to make them mm. or every now and again but they were suppressed heavily censored um, he had a, a developing international reputation that helped him I, I don't know, not disappear. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because we're talking Stalinist, Khrushchev, you know, uh, 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 we're talking a totalitarian regime that he lived in that uh, shit could happen to, to you, you know, as easy as anything. Yeah, we've got to talk about his, the fact that his shots, you know, like, like he, one of his signatures is that he holds shots. For so long. Long takes. Yeah. But and not the long takes of Awesome Wells, where there's <laughs> shit going on. Moving around, yeah. Like, you know, you it's have very to look still. at the edge of the frame to realise yeah, the camera is an almost moving, imperceptible yeah. zoom in. Yeah, yeah. He does that a lot in Stalker, in particular. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, but well, next up is the Mirror in '75, mm. which is so autobiographical and kind of the film you have to see to really understand uh, Tarkovsky. Do you guys think Terence Malick ever saw this film? Uh, maybe yeah, a few hundred chance. times, I would say. Yeah. yeah, seems to have influenced everything Terence Malick's done since the seventies. Yeah, okay. that, That's just cool. a tone, uh, uh, impressionistic tone poem of a movie. Well, certainly, Tree of Life was very mirror-ish. You know, yeah. like, mm. uh, well, just in in its its sort of that sort of elliptical scat- scatter shot narrative, you and know. even Thin Red Line as well. Yeah. Oh well. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. But um, and like, with you know poems being recited over images. Yeah. For huge lengths of time and like yeah. when i tried to make narrative sense of the mirror which was the w- the one for me that was the hardest one to make narrative sense of because it, w- it was like it was like a mirror that's reflected somebody's life like the reality the fantasy the the dreams of mm. somebody's life smashed and then sort of put together so yeah. it's yeah. just going it, it's it, it's it's very uh, fragmented and disjointed and but there are s- like set piece things in it and and then uh, remember that scene where uh, the 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 blonde woman something happens and she she rushes through the rain and goes to yeah. that printing or uh, like that newspaper mm-hmm. uh, office and they and they rush through and everybody starts getting paranoid and and, and you know she finds like the the thing that she was looking for and looks at it and obviously realizes that the problem she thought was there wasn't there and then like it breaks down in the shower mm. remember that set yeah, piece yeah. well that, like in russia in the late 50s or early you know probably the late 50s when stalin was still around somebody in a, at um pravda you know the newspaper had spelt stalin as shralin which means shit oh. in russian yeah and i think you know like 20 people 
fucking ended up in Siberia. Yeah. Because of that. You know, on the mm. editorial staff and it wasn't just the person who made the mistake. Yeah, was, yeah. And, and and that was him like literally recreating that sort of you know, that that oppressive shit you know, you can through no fault of your own you can just make make some mistake and it can be the end of you. Mm. And even when you haven't made the mistake, you still that's like what paranoia is about, mm. you know, like and uh living under that sort of living that sort of life. Yeah. You just think you've you constantly think you've fucked up even though you you haven't. Yeah, yeah. You know? I found this film impenetrable. Um and I know it's based on his experiences, but there is something bewitching about it. There is something quite it's quite an intense experience and there's some jaw-dropping imagery. I could appreciate this one a lot more, again, a- as the tone poem that it is. There's one shot near the start that seems to have influenced th- about the last 20 years of Japanese horror cinema. It's <laughs> this scene with, like, water dripping from the roof. and <laughs> that, is, that, is one of, that is a recurring motif in his films. Raining indoors happens in about three or four of his mm. films. Levitating. Levitating. Dreaming of dogs. The stillness of nature, lots of water, mirrors, candles, bells. There's just so many recurring themes yeah. in his films. But the raining indoors one is such a specific mm. one. It, it really stands out, I think. I mean, if Tarkovsky's had an influence on me, at like when, whenever I've been lucky enough to make films, it's probably shooting into mirrors. I mm. love shooting into mirrors. Uh, like having a mirror as a prop in a scene and using it. Mm. I, I just think it does sh- shit to the frame that you you can't even understand when you're shooting it. It's in the edit and when you watch it on the big screen. You yeah. just go, that was just so much better ha- having that double reflection and than it was if I just shot it straight, you know, mm. against a wall. Or <laughs> <laughs> so I'm always shooting into mirrors. <laughs> I got to say my favourite of his films is actually 79's The Stalker or just Stalker. Yeah. It's... I I just think it's extraordinary. It's about so much. It's it feels like a post-apocalyptic film, and then it feels like a western, and then you realise it's about Chernobyl, and but then it's about you know the place of the artist, and then it's it's just got so much going on, and it's so visceral, as you say, and I there's something about it that is really really hypnotic and frightening and unexplained, mm. and this one drew me in more than any of the others. Yeah, it's a cool, interesting film. I, I love the whole angle on cre- creativity. And ins- the whole thing is about inspiration mm. and about you know people finding their inspiration and then rejecting it, or you know the the place of inspiration is equally uh, liable for evil as it is good. And it, in some ways, it almost feels like an influence on Inception, on this place, this place you go to to get in- to get right, yeah. this sort of inner headspace mm. you know this this world you go into in order to gain inspiration mm. is is you know it doesn't seem a million miles away from influencing a world you go into to influence somebody's dreams in order to inspire them to do something well, look i think uh, uh, i think that all the f- those filmmakers you've cited like uh, w- would definitely not say they weren't influenced yeah. by tarkovsky mm. absolutely it's like the story of a of a sort of a an outsider, a stalker who who guides a what is it? A philosopher and a scientist, a, a writer and a a writer and a professor. But yeah, a writer yeah. and a professor into th- into this place called the zone, where there's sort of no life, and you, it's hard to get into, and it feels like you know some sort of out of bounds state mm. of mind. 
But where everything is quieter and more serene mm. and in colour. Yeah. As opposed to the sepia world that yeah. we've seen to that point. Yeah. But then there's little quirks. Like, you, nobody ever goes back the same way that they travelled. Mm. The fact that there are people here changes it. It's a, it's a labyrinth. Mm. You know, Again, like. it's the environment is the villain. Mm. The environment is working against you. It's... It's an amazing, amazing film. Yeah, the environment. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I guess that is some. Uh, like the environment is the villain, but also the environment is the place where you want to be as well. Mm. Like his sense of place in all his films. Oh, like yeah. the environment is incredibly important. Yes. But I understand what you mean. It, it embodies good and evil, mm. malevolence and nurturing. Maybe that's like the ultimate dichotomy. You can't have the dream without the nightmare and yeah. all that sort of stuff. Exactly. Know? Yeah. Well, it's. I think one of the most important films for him was the first day which he started filming in 79. It was a film where that he submitted a different script to the authorities, knowing that they wouldn't let him shoot the one that he was actually shooting. They approved it, then found out what he was actually making, stopped the film, because uh, it was so critical of, of the Soviets, uh, and Tarkovsky was so angry he destroyed what he'd shot already and left the Soviet Union. And that was his. That was the big breaking defected, point. Defected, I think. He defected. Call it in mm-hmm. those days. Well, exactly. And um, his next credited film is 1983's Voyage in Time, which is kind of like a DVD special feature. Yeah, yeah. It's, it was a television special, television documentary. Yeah, it was. It was for TV. Yeah, and it's. It, it's almost him location scouting for nostalgia. Yeah, it is. It seems. Him, though, it is literally that. Yeah, I, I think Tarko- it's become a credit of his post his death. Yeah, well, yeah. you know what I mean. Like, I, I don't, I don't know if he'd own that as one of his. Sure. Yeah. But uh, yeah, but it's such an insight because he's. I mean, it's a doco, and the camera's on him for yeah. most of the time, and he talks about his influences and his process, and suddenly this mysterious figure is opening up to you. So, although it's not, I, you know, I wouldn't call it part of his canon, but it's so interesting to oh, watch. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, for me, it was the key view in mm. this cl- in this in this retrospective. Because it's suddenly, and this is what I was saying earlier, that I came to a realisation about Tarkovsky and I, because I was finding a lot of these films difficult, and I was finding a, a little, finding it all a little bit elitist at times, and was trying to uh, struggling to connect with him. And then finally, watching this doco and hearing Tarkovsky hold forth on what he believes cinema is and what he believes cinema does, and his, you know, pretty much his rejection of genre as a concept, and mm. he's not interested in that, and he's interested in, you know, truth and memory and poetry and and his influences and the kind of filming he hates i suddenly realized that in many ways we were poles apart and these fears that i had that i was a philistine were actually no it's just two completely different personalities it's somebody it's it's you meet them in life an artistic person who you who is brilliant and passionate and innovative and an amazing force and somebody you absolutely respect never agree with Mm. and maybe even don't get along with but you have to respect them because of their because of their brilliance because of their passion and because but in the end you're just coming from two completely different poles of the planet and that is how i felt about tarkovsky and and after that i started to retroactively frame a lot of his works Mm. with that in mind and it yeah, it's your me. it's your problem, not his sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I do understand what you mean. Yeah, um, um, but it's interesting though because almost all Tarkovsky's films can be generically embraced, mm. and maybe if there is some other crazy influence, say on the movies that I, I, I I've tried to make, 
I love genre and I, lo- I, I love making movies that are understandable on that level. But I want to marry them with something more ambitious, like mm. on a cinematic or arty or whatever level. That's my ambition as a filmmaker. But I do want to make action movies with, you know, car chases and guns going mm. off and, you know, sort of right-wing heroes and, you know, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> um, Tarkovsky, he is this sort of high-art filmmaker. You know, like, I can't think of anybody more sort of philosophically and artistically inclined in his endeavour. Mm. But his films are still sort of generically embraceable on some sort of level. I mean, Ivan's Childhood is a war movie. Mm. Um, Andre Rublov is like a bloody medieval sort of sword and sandal sort of <laughs> epic. Obviously, Solaris. And Solaris is a sci-fi movie. And then Stalker is like a, a, a sci-fi apocalypse movie. Then where do, where do we go? Uh, uh, st- then to Nostalgia in 83. Nostalgia... I mean, that's the first fi- film he made in exile, and yeah. it's about being in exile, uh, and he, he and 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 li- like uh, uh, being an a- uh, like a, a, a an alien in a mm. foreign landscape, and it's it's almost not fair to talk about a filmmaker in terms of who they've influenced after after they're long gone. But it's hard not to because one of my favourite contemporary filmmakers is Alexander Sokorov, who is a huge. Tarkovsky obsessive. Oh yeah. And well, he worked with Tarkovsky. I did not know that. I think he made a doco about Tarkovsky. I knew. Yeah, I knew he'd made a doco. I wasn't sure if that was posthumous or or while he was still around. No, I th- I think I think he like worked with him as okay. well, like as a fourth or fifth AD come schlep, you know, right. sort of. <laughs> well, I'm I'm a huge huge fan of Russian Ark, uh, and that film would not exist without nostalgia. You could just see that Sokorov watched that a million times over uh, and then went and made Russian Ark. Um, yeah, like if Tarkovsky can do a 10-minute take, I can do a 90-minute yeah, take. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> With somebody whispering really loudly in your ear as you move through an environment and it's slightly surreal. And But God, nostalgia was amazing. Um, yeah, like in- incredible, powerful, incredibly powerful images, and like mm. yeah, I th- like Tarkovsky knew he w- he he was was dying of cancer. He was also est- like he was living in in the West, and his wife and child were still in Russia, yep. and he he was away from his homeland and all that sort of stuff, and it, it all informs that script. I think it's written by Tony O'Gara and him. Yeah, you know, yeah. that dude who wrote a lot of scripts for. Uh, pa- uh, was uh, it Antonioni or? Uh, yeah, Antonioni yeah. and. Um, Bunuel, I think, as well. Right, yeah. Um, but so it's all about that, and then the sacrifice is in eighty. Yeah, eighty six. Eighty six. His yeah. final film, like he, 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 he sort of died when that was debuting yeah, at festivals yeah. and stuff like that. It's so and it's so easy to you know retroactively apply meaning to a film, but I think this is one of those cases where you know he knew what was going on. Yeah. He knew the score. It was it was his coda to yeah. his life and. Well, it's 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 his apocalypse movie. It's his Armageddon. Yeah, it's, it's like, all about the Cold War and mm. yeah, and it's 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 like the it's his end of the world movie. Yeah. Mm. and like obviously, you know, uh, the film that you'll be talking about next month, Melancholia. That's yeah. Lars's yeah. Lars yeah. <laughs> going back to because uh, obviously Lars von Trier is incredibly influenced yeah. by Tarkovsky. Mm. His first film, The Element of Crime, was like this is like directed by a twenty-year-old Tarkovsky. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so he's gone full circle. He's gone back to his sort of primal mm. influences and and gods and whatever. Who is Tarkovsky? 
and what what a way to go out on. I mean, to end your career that last half hour. Yeah. God. Do you know the story of the burning of that building? You, no. you know how, you know, at the end, this guy goes crazy and he burns down this country house. Mm. And it's this all in one shot. Beautiful country house is all mm. shot in one shot. Uh, uh, like the, the final shot is about, or the, the second to last shot. Mm. Um, it's, a, it's, it's almost a seven or eight minute take yep. where this guy sets fire to this house and then the house burns to the ground. Mm. And he's like running around being chased by people from the mental asylum and mm. ambulance people and so on. Um, it's out in the country. Well, as Sven Nickvist, uh, Bergman's cinematographer, yep. shot it, and something happened to the camera the first time they shot that, and the take was fucked. No. So they had to rebuild that house. Jesus. And reburn it down. <laughs> wow. Okay, I was going to make a joke about, hey, guys, can we go for a second take on that? But they yeah, did. Yeah. That but was the, the second take. The camera jammed. And they only oh. had uh, they only had one camera covering it because you know like mm. also Tarkovsky I think I I, I assume I, I don't know this for sure but I assume he wasn't into second unit and he wasn't into multiple cameras no. and you know you know that happened to him once before on Stalker they like shot the film and the chemical lab ruined it and so he had to go back and make it again <sighs> that's the second take of an entire film oh really the yeah, entire Stalker. film the yes. entire film yes Jesus. it was all gone. He had to re- just go back Gee, and start had again. Excellent luck, didn't he? Yeah, patience, I think. Bloody hell. But <laughs> that, uh, and that's, um, uh, I think that's part of a documentary. You actually see that yeah. that take. Like the ruined some, one. The ruined one. Right. And oh, you wow. see him get the, inf- get, like him and Sven go, fuck. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Something. <laughs> yeah, the Ari, <laughs> the Ari crapped itself. Oh my God. Killed me yeah. now. It's an extraordinary filmography, even if it is a small one in terms of number of films made, but it feels enormous. feels enormous, and, and all the works feel like that they all achieve some degree of perfection. Mm. They all seem very perfect in some way, and incredibly inve- adventurous and politically and emotionally engaged and sort of pretty fearless. You know, he wasn't afraid to be critical of institutions of people like bite the bite the hand that feeds him all that sort of stuff you know he just mm. he was committed to art yeah mm. was, it's very, i know what you mean it's very privileged it's very capital a art mm. but you know mm. th- th- that was i think that was just his gen th- that was that generation and certainly that generation of middle class Ru- mm. russian people and he was the son of a poet as yeah well, and you know yeah. like i mean he did have a privilege he had a, a life in russia but it was a privileged life mm. you know he wasn't out there digging potatoes and yeah you know Whatever else, you know, he had a relatively privileged middle-class life in Russia and influenced everybody who yeah. came after That's him. That's the thing. No matter, I mean, which side of the divide you fall on, whatever, he, he is undeniably a giant in terms of his approach, his aesthetic and his influence. Yeah. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, heaps. Thank you. It's been a privilege. It really has. Yes, we'll pay you later. <laughs> and we'll see the rest of you next month. Keep watching stuff. <laughs> <laughs>